0: All right, I would like to read through the passage again, just a little bit of history. Jesus is speaking at the Last Supper, the night before he is going to die on the cross. And uh, the writer of this, Matthew, was there. He was one of the guys that was there. Matthew writes this, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink with it, I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Well, did you ever have an idea of something that would bring people together? You wanted to unite people that weren't united, and you put it all together, and it actually had the opposite effect. And it, it caused division. Now, for some of you, you're like, yes, we've been on family vacations. it <laughs> all year, and everybody fought the whole time. And sadly, this is what has happened in many ways with... Uh, what we call the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. We said last week some people refer to it as communion or Holy Communion or the Eucharist. Eucharist, we said last week, the word just means to give thanks. And, And so a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about what this all is. And so the title of our message today is The Views of the Lord's Supper. The Views of the Lord's Supper. For the last two weeks... We have been with Jesus and the apostles uh, in the upper room in Jerusalem celebrating the highly symbolic uh, Passover meal, which was a meal of remembrance. They were remembering what God did. That's very important. We'll need that later. Put that in the back of your mind. They were remembering what God did when he freed the Jews, the people of God, some 1,400 or 1,500 years earlier uh, from slavery in Egypt when he said to them, kill a lamb, put the blood of the lamb over your door, and if the blood of the lamb is over your door, the destroyer, the angel of death, will pass by. If there's no blood over the door, then the firstborn male in your family will die. So either you would have a dead firstborn male, or there would be a dead lamb uh, in your house. Uh, This uh, uh, part is new to everybody in the upper room. What Jesus is doing here in the, in the text we just read was not a normal part of the Passover meal, and it came as they were eating, and it, you know, we said very casually last week that as they were eating, and it is the heart of what we call the Lord's Supper. We said last week that three of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus' words regarding this, as does later on, uh, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that he got instruction from the Lord on this. And as we said last week, the controversy surrounds Jesus' words, this is my body and this is my blood. And the controversy is this, what did he mean? What was he saying? What was he talking about? And We noted last week that people for centuries, they've they've argued about things like this for centuries, often ignoring Jesus' extensive use of metaphors and Jesus' extensive use of symbolic language in his teaching, and this has unfortunately caused many people to miss the point that Jesus was pointing to his death when he was doing this and its meaning. We said last week uh, a striking thing about the gospel writers' accounts, and again, Matthew was there, was the lack of details regarding the Lord's Supper. It's kind of interesting. It's like when Jesus gets killed, it's like, and he was crucified. You know, know, all the sermons on all the bloodiness and how horrible it was and stuff like that. It's not really Bible stuff. just very, very kind of casually mentions it, and this kind of really just goes through it very, very quickly. And uh, it's interesting, Matthew tells us that, Jesus' blood was shed for many, which means that potentially there's a large effect of the shedding of Jesus' blood, yet we still don't get many details about this whole uh, Lord's Supper part of the Last Supper that took place in the upper room the night before the cross. Now, later on, when the Apostle Paul gives us instruction on this, it's very interesting to see uh, and he says, that which I received from the Lord I passed on to you. It's very, easy, it's very interesting to see Jesus' heart in the Lord's Supper, what we would call communion. Uh, typically, they would practice it after a meal. So maybe we're doing it wrong right there. Although there seems to be a lot of freedom in this. Uh, and, and it seems that the Lord is really concerned with the unity of God's people in it. He's concerned with the love of God's people. He's concerned with the holiness of God's people as a church and as individuals. And he's also concerned about not participating in the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner. Uh, You might say, um, I might say it this way. The Lord's Supper is not the Lord's Supper unless it is really the Lord's Supper and not just something where we are going through the motions. Now, you might say, well, I'm not so sure I agree with that. To be honest with you, I stole that from the Apostle Paul. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 through 20. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Wouldn't you hate that said about our church? Like God's like, oh man, when you guys get together, heaven's like, ooh, that stinks, man, the way these people are when they, when they get together. I mean, they, they, they fight. They don't get along. This is just absolutely horrible. I mean, some of you come from churches like that, and you'll, you'll meet me, and you'll be like, oh, my church, all the, the people do is fight. And I'm like, well, don't, do, don't bring that here, man. Like, we are the church drama refugees. We don't want that stuff here. And he says this, for, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Verse 19 is such an interesting verse to tell your church-fighting friends. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Like, what does that mean? Well, he says, for there, there must be factions, there must be divisions among you so that those who are approved, some verses say those who are genuine or who have God's approval, we might say those who are the real followers of Jesus may be recognized. So you'll know who they are. So the next time somebody says to you, you know what? I went to a church and all the people did was fight. You go, well, according to the word of God, they might actually not be Christians. You say, oh, that would be very judgmental. You're not. You're just loosely quoting the Bible by saying that. God's people are not supposed to be fighting with each other all of the time. And then he says this. Therefore, when you come together, verse 20, in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You say that's what you're doing, but that's not what you are doing. Well, then a few verses later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 26, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, because next week we're going to talk about what's actually going on when we participate in the Lord's Supper. He says this, uh, chapter 11, verse 23 to 26, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this, my body, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Again, put that in the back of your mind. Bank that term remembrance. Remember we said the Passover was a remembrance meal? And Jesus says here, what you're doing, he's instituting the Lord's Supper, and he's saying, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, we discussed this last week, in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Same thing. Put that terminology in the back of your mind for as often. Now, it's interesting, we're not told how often. Some people think we're supposed to do it every day. Some people think we're supposed to do it every week. Some people think we're supposed to do it every month. Some people say, I want to be like Jesus and the apostles. They only did it on the night of Passover. right?" So I'm only going to do it once a year. We're not told. We're not told. So there's there's room there. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do you do? You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, As we saw last week, in in the context of this very symbolic Passover meal, the words, we saw the words, this is my body. And we we said that in Aramaic, which would be the language that they chiefly spoke, uh, that the word is is not in Aramaic. So it would more literally read, this my body. And we said perhaps a better way of saying it is this, this represents my body, this stands for my body, or this is symbolic of my body. So when he picks up the bread, that he would be saying that. In 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul says, the Lord told him that that is my body, which is broken for you. Matthew says that it's the blood, that the blood is shed for many. Now you say, what do you mean broken for you? What do you mean shed for many? The idea in our way of thinking would be something like this. This is being done for the benefit of you. My body, Jesus is saying, is being broken. I'm going to die on the cross for the benefit of you. I'm going to shed my blood because the scripture, the Old Testament scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no removal of sins. I am shedding my blood for the benefit of you. Now, this is very, very important. Now, let's go back real quick to what the Apostle Paul said. When you eat the bread, when you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Jesus, at the Last Supper, is not mourning his death. Did we hear that? Jesus is not mourning his death. Remember, he says at the end, hey, we're going to drink this again in my father's house, in my father's kingdom. And I I fear sometimes, particularly for a lot of us with, with some of the baggage we have from our upbringing that sometimes the Lord's Supper is too introspective. So we're we're taught, and rightfully so, that we should examine ourselves. We should do that. We're taught, and I believe rightly so, that we should confess our sins and and, and ask for God's forgiveness. I believe we should do that. But we can't stay there. And that may be just the short part of, of, of participating in the Lord's Supper. Because when we become... Too introspective, and it's about us, and it's about our sin. What are we forgetting that it's really about? It's really about the cross of Christ. That's what it's about. If you're just sitting there going, "Oh, I'm so unworthy. I'm so bad," how are you proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes? When you get the word "proclaim," doesn't that make you feel like I'm proclaiming? Right? I'm excited oh, I'm so unworthy, I'm so unworthy. You are, don't worry about it, right? Worthy is the lamb, right? So, so we sing praises to the lamb that was slain. At, at the last supper, the sins of the people at that meal were, were required, right? Um, that, made the, that made the meal required and the death of the host of the meal The Lord Jesus himself, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we come to the Lord's table or the Lord's Supper, it shows us that together, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we share the gift of salvation because we have put our trust in the life, death, and resurrection uh, of Jesus and the person of Jesus Christ. So when we think of the bread of life, we have been nourished by Jesus. When we think of the blood of Jesus, we are, we are washed clean, having confessed our sins. And so there's no need for us to leave the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. I know it's hard to kick feeling dirty. It's really hard. But just remember that that's something that is in your mind and not in God's mind, not in God's heart, because in his mind, he has cleansed you from all of your sins and unrighteousness. And so, um, yet out of the simplicity of this symbolic demonstration has come many, many views. There are tons of them. And I'm going to, today, I'm going to narrow them down to four. We're going to look at four views. I'm going to spend a lot more time on the first one. I'll talk about that in, in a second, why I'm going to do that. But even some of the stuff we hear in the first view, we are going to carry over in the, the principles into the other views because they'll go rather quickly. The crucial difference in, in the views is the understanding of the communion bread and the wine or the grape juice in light of Jesus' words. In other words... Um, the, it comes down to this question. Is the bread and the wine the body and blood of Christ physically, spiritually, or symbolically? Let me just say that again. Is the bread and the wine the body and blood of Christ, Jesus' words, not mine, is it his body and blood physically, spiritually, or symbolically. View number one, and certainly the most popular where we live, and certainly the most popular with the, how most people in this church were raised. And that view is called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation. Also known as the Roman Catholic view. Now, here's the problem when you summarize all of these views. Each one of these views could be a few sermons in and of themselves. So when you try to summarize something, you're not going to give a complete description of it. You're going to miss stuff. You're going to realize that within each view, there's different opinions within each view. And so unless all of you want to talk about transubstantiation until Christmas, I mean, we'll take breaks here and there. We're going to have to go through it rather quickly. So um, as many of you know, I was raised Roman Catholic. And I went to Catholic school for 12 years. I was an altar boy for four years, which meant that a lot of times in seventh and eighth grade, I went to mass every single day of the week, uh, being an altar boy. Um, I come from what is known in Roman Catholicism as a clergy family. Uh, two of my aunts were nuns, and one of my uncle was a, as a priest. And uh, the, in, in Irish Catholic uh, thinking, you're supposed to give one to the cloth, And so I always tease my family members. Well, I'm the one that you gave to the cloth. And they're like, well, wrong team. And so I always say, well, I'm still doing better than any of you heretics. And um, to this day, I am shocked how many Roman Catholics do not really know about transubstantiation. Now, this would not have been true 20, 30 years ago, but it is true now with many. Uh, They don't understand the view, and they actually say that they don't believe the view. If you don't believe the view, you are, under Roman Catholic uh, doctrine or dogma, you are anathema, which means you are not a Catholic. Now You say, well, no, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. That, no, no. If you don't believe this, the, 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 the sacraments as they teach them, then, then you're out. And so um, basically the view states this, Basically, we could again. We could the whole sermon could be just on the nuances of the view. Basically, the view says this: the elements, the the bread and the wine, the bread and the um, and, and the grape juice that we use here, the bread and the cup, literally become the body and blood of Jesus in the priest's hands. So again, remember, I come with the history of being an altar boy, bringing it to the priest. You know, the the, the the wine to the priest, and and watching everything that's going on there. So I remember this stuff very, very clearly. And the Mass is a literal reenactment of Christ's sacrifice. Christ is the victim, and offered up again. They would use the word continually for the forgiveness of sins. Now, let's be fair. Roman Catholics are not declaring that it's 100% the same. They are acknowledging the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice of Jesus. Now, much of this doctrine was actually solidified by Roman Catholicism in the Council of Trent, which took place between 1545 and 1563 in the city of Trent in northern Italy. And Trent's ruling went like this. Since the bread, or the host, is the actual body of Jesus, People need to kneel in worship. That, that's the view that they, that they declared. And um, sometimes I have occasions to go to Roman Catholic Mass. Um, I don't receive communion there anymore personally, and I don't kneel during that time. I was at church recently, at Roman Catholic Church recently, and got some sneering looks when I wouldn't kneel. And, I, you know, I wanted to, the, I wish they had walked up to me and said something. And I would have said, I will not talk to you about that in this building out of respect, but I will gladly talk with you as long as you want in the parking lot. But it didn't come to that. I just got the sneering looks. And and so um, here's the thing about Trent's declaration. It cannot be changed. It's It is now... part of of Roman Catholic dogma, cannot be changed. Yet this is what I find very interesting. The vote was not unanimous. Very, very interesting point, I think, to me anyway. I've been on several church boards. I'm on the church board here. I know this, that unless it is something where your, your back is against the wall, do we, do we renew a lease? Do we renew a contract? Then you might get a split vote. I've never been part of a split vote in all the church boards I've been on and the stuff that I've been involved with here. Typically what we do is, if it's not, not unanimous, we throw out the vote. And then we say we need to, we need to pray, we need to come back on a month, we need, to read, we need to discuss this again. And unless our back is up against the wall on something, we will not move forward with anything that is not unanimous. What happened in Trent was, I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't there for the vote tally, but the Pope said, I think, I believe in transubstantiation, so he basically won out. Uh, some of the fathers opposed that Jesus was speaking literally, and instead they opted for the view called real presence, which we will talk about in a minute. But again, Trent was not unanimous. People who disagree with, with, with this view remind us of some of the other types of metaphors that were used that are used in the scripture. Um, we're, we're told uh, that John was told to eat a scroll. So how many of you think that John was taking scroll, his scrolls that he had with, with scripture on it and, and, and actually eating it? None of you buy that, do you? Okay, we're, we're, we're told that new believers need spiritual milk. Now, I don't go to the supermarket too much, but when I go, I know there's a lot of choices of milk. I haven't seen spiritual milk as one of them. We're also told that mature believers need solid food. Well, so do people who aren't believers, okay? So that doesn't tell us anything. See, the words flesh and body are used metaphorically many times in the Word of God, so we must be very, very careful the way we interpret the Bible. I'll give you an example of something that I've given to many of you before, but some of you are new here, so it might be worth repeating. People say to me quite often, do you take the Bible literally? To which my next question is, what do you mean by literally? They're like, what do you mean by literally? Do you, mean literally? What do you, mean, you believe you know, what it says? I'll say yes, I believe in literal intent. You go, what do you mean by that? I believe that you're supposed to realize that the Bible uses different forms of language and we are to we have to figure out whether it's speaking literally, okay, or it's speaking symbolically. Here's the example. Not supposed to be a nice day today, right? But let's just say it called for a for a 100% chance of rain. And uh, as you were uh, walking in to the service, you saw the people from the last service, and you said to them, it's raining cats and dogs outside. How many of them, of them do you think were expecting to walk outside and seeing animals falling from the sky? Some of them might have been hoping, oh, we want a pet. Okay, but, but, but no, it is a metaphor. It's, they're speaking symbolically. We all know that means it's raining heavily. So that's what I mean by I take the Bible with literal intent, and you have to really closely examine some of the language that's being used. Now, some of you might remember this story, but again, it might be worth repeating uh, for some of you who were not here. I haven't talked in a while. Uh, Before I was a pastor, I owned a trucking company, and one of uh, my employees was getting married, and uh, they apparently my employees all thought it was funny uh, to seat me next to the priest at the wedding because I was this rabid born-again Christian uh, and, and to see how, what, what that would be like. And so all the people uh, at the table thought it was funny. I didn't think it was funny. I was fine with it. Uh, the priest was mad at me. And, and my wife was like, you talk to the priest all night. You forgot your date. <laughs> so, so, but the rest of the people at the table, they thought it was just, that was great comedy. This particular priest was uh, from South America, and he was a, a family friend, and he was a Roman Catholic resident theologian in the South. Basically, he traveled around uh, discussing Roman Catholic theology in Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Um, and so we were, we were sitting there, and uh, he was very upset when he learned that I came from a clergy family and that I was no longer a practicing Catholic. And in, in, in that thing, there is a special thing for what we call clergy families, it's probably, you know, like so, so many of us pastors I would be one. You have a heart for pastors' kids because you know it's not always the easiest thing in the world, and and so they have a they have a thing for clergy family. Uh, case in point: my first day of high school, I get called down to the office, and I'm like, I've been there like ten minutes, and everybody in my room looks at me like, "Well, man, what did you do? That guy's a troublemaker," and I'm thinking, I have not done anything yet, and so <laughs> yet, and so. I walk down there, and I went to a big high school, and so there's like five guidance counselors, and I look over the names of the, the, the guidance wing, and it's got the name. I'm waiting there, and it's four lay people who would not be priests or nuns and one nun, and I'm going, I know I'm getting the nun. I know I'm getting the nun. I know I'm getting the nun. So I go in. I sit down, and I'm sitting next to her, right next to her desk, and she does not say a word. She's just working, clearing her throat every couple seconds, <clears throat> not saying a word, so I don't say a word. So I'm just there and just there. And finally she looks up and, or even not even looking at me and she's like, do you know who I am? And I said, I don't know who you are. I just got here, right? I don't know who you are. I'm thinking this is a mistaken identity or something like that. And she goes to me, I've known you since you were born. And I said, really? And she said, I've been to your house many, many times. I said, really? She said, yes, I was your Aunt Elizabeth's roommate in the convent for five years. She said, I'm going to have my eye on you every day that you're here. I said, oh, joy. (laughs) But it's a special thing because I was, I was come from a clergy family. So he was, he was very upset with me, this priest at this wedding, that I was not practicing giving my history. And, and And the people at the table were laughing about how upset he was with me. And finally, we're going back and forth with the scriptures and and you know he's thinking, well, you know all this stuff from your upbringing. And I said, I don't know it from my upbringing. That's that's not how I know it from my upbringing. Really, we only studied the Bible two years. Sister Maria Brooks, I always say about her, the love of Jesus was, was coming out her socks. Can't wait to meet her in heaven and introduce her to all you guys, and and just say, you know, you made such a difference in my life. But finally, this guy was so upset for me, he thundered at me, and he just made a fist like this, and he says, okay how do you answer john 6:53 and then he recited it john 6:53 says this then jesus said to them most assuredly i say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in you so i said to him all right father cuz i'm from new york we can talk like that <laughs> i said all right father What did Jesus say 10 verses later? What did Jesus say 10 verses later? Jesus, 10 verses later, said this, John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Some versions say is no help at all. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now I said to him, I said, Father, I'm willing to concede that in your verse, that Jesus was talking about his flesh and in our in the verse I'm citing he was talking about our flesh but this is my challenge to you do you really think that he would use the same word in the same sermon one minute apart and speak literally in one sentence and speak metaphorically in the next sentence In the next couple sentences, you and I know know that is a horrible hermeneutic of Bible interpretation. Hermeneutic is the art and science of biblical interpretation. Then the dude was furious with me. (laughs) He's like, that. oh, he goes, you raise a very good point. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. I never meet people like you. Never. I usually give them that verse and they're dead. Right. And he said, uh, tell your pastor that he's really taught you well. And, and so he got up and left. And the people at my table were like, man, you beat the priest, man, you beat the priest. And I'm like, I didn't beat him at all. We were just having a discussion. And they were like, well, he wasn't having no discussion. He was, he, he was upset with you. You see, those who don't embrace this view would say, according to the doctrine of the incarnation, God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is in one body and therefore in one place at one time. Therefore, when he took the bread and handed it to the apostles, he could not be passing himself around the room because he was standing right there, nor could he be reincarnated in the mass because He is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Nor, people who disagree with this view, should the host be worshipped and be knelt in front of because they would say that is a violation of thou shalt not have graven images. And it is a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Now, the counter will come as this. Well, it is a miracle. Um, But not because it's seen, like something like Jesus's miracles or like the resurrection, but it's a miracle. Why? Because the church says so. I have a real problem with that personally. Uh, that's, that's as nicely as I can put it, uh, because this is going out over the airwaves. Right? But I, 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 don't, I don't believe something just because the church says it. I can get up here and tell you all kinds of gobbledygook, and who cares? It's just gobbledygook. Just, well, it's because I'm the pastor. I said it. Well, Jim, we really don't care. Now, much more could be said. This week, I invite you to read the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 10. I'll just pick out one passage. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. Notice how many times the sacrifice is made once. By that will, and he's been talk, the writer's been talking about the will of God, we have been sanctified. That means believers who are set apart by God for his purposes, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, that would be an Old Testament priest, stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he, Jesus, had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, those who are being set apart by God. So that's view number one. View number two is called consubstantiation. Consubstantiation. So now after ticking off the Roman Catholics in the room, I'm going to tick off the Lutherans. This is also known as the Lutheran view. And um, in this view, the substance of the bread and the wine doesn't change like the Roman Catholic view. Instead, the unchanged substance of the bread is united with the substance of Christ's body. Do we have that? So, Christ's body comes to the supper and is united to the bread, but the bread does not become Jesus. This was actually Martin Luther's view. In other words, Christ is present in, and they'll use the term, under the elements, but the elements themselves do not become Christ. Again, the the same problem remains if Jesus' body has ascended into heaven, and we just read that he's seated at the right hand of God in a body, he ascended in a body, we know that he is still in a body. That's how we'll know who he is in heaven. The guy with the nail stains. Nail, nail uh, pierced hands, I mean. The nail marks. And and all the, the one everybody's worshiping. But if he's, he's ascended into heaven, how is it then that his body is there if the doctrine of the incarnation is one place at one time? That's why Jesus was not all over the place when he was here on earth. He was in one place at one time. How is it then he is then at millions of communion tables every Sunday all over the world. That would be the people against that view. Um, We might describe view number two as real presence. And that is the view that a lot of the priests at Trent actually took. They said, we believe in real presence. We don't believe in transubstantiation. We believe Christ comes, but we don't believe that the the body and blood, are the the water, excuse me, the the bread and the cup are now become actually Jesus. So now we come to view number three. View number three is called spiritual presence. Spiritual presence. This was the view of John Calvin, to which a lot of people go, well, if Calvin believed it, I believe it. (laughs) A lot of other people are like, who's John Calvin? Well, he was the, the great the great reformer. Uh, Luther was too, but John Calvin, uh, just incredible, incredible uh, ministry, really. And, and this is also sometimes called the reformed view. And that view is that Jesus is present spiritually in the communion service, but not physically. So the first two views, that they actually believe that communion benefits the recipients whether there is faith or not which I used to remember saying to my mother, and she's like, come on, you got to go get communion. I'd be like, mom, I haven't even paid attention to one thing the priest said. Like, why should I go? And she's like, it's good for you. You know, like, what is it, vitamins or something like that? But th- I know, now I know what she's talking about. That's what she was talking about. Um, but the, the spiritual presence view completely disagrees with that and says that, like, all spiritual blessings— This sacrament or ordinance, I personally prefer the word ordinance, don't shoot me for that one, but this sacrament or ordinance must be received by faith. Remember we said last week, putting the blood over your door, there's an element of faith associated with that, and so that that, that must be received by faith. Now the fourth view is called uh, the memorial view, sometimes called the remembrance view, and this is the view of most Baptists. That's why they drink grape juice. That's not why we drink grape juice because we're Calvary Chapel too. Many of us are like, we used to drink too much booze, so we don't, <laughs> so, so we're staying away from that stuff. So, um, but this view is heavily influenced by Jesus' words, do this in remembrance of me. And, and we receive communion to remember what the Lord did. And I would say that this might, what I'm about to say, might be possible in all the views. However, it's particularly prominent in the, in the memorial view, is as we see Jesus Christ crucified and realize that we, he died on the cross in our place for our sins, as we think about that at the Lord's table, a grateful affection For Jesus, should be ignited in the heart of the participant. I'm not saying that couldn't happen in any of the other views, but that is the rock-solid, if you will, foundation of the memorial view. So some of you will say to me, well, what do you believe, Pastor Jim? So let me save a couple hundred emails and confuse everybody anyway. um, In Deuteronomy 12 and various places in the Old Testament law, uh, which was still in effect at the Last Supper, they, were, they knew that they were not allowed to drink blood. So I don't think they were, when Jesus said, this is my blood, I don't think he's causing them to sin. And, and, and they were not allowed to eat flesh with blood in it, nor were they allowed to eat people. So I don't, I don't really think that, that Jesus was talking about his actual body the the apostles would be sitting there at the dinner and and while Jesus is passing out the bread and he's saying this is my body they 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 would not have believed that they were eating him and 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 th- since Jesus still remains in heaven remember in chapter 24 and 25 we talked about he's waiting in heaven for his return since he's still seated at the right hand of God i'd have to say that Point number one and point number two, of which most of you even forget by now. of Point number one and point number two—that it becomes the actual body and blood, or that he comes and 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 become, you know, is joined together with the with the with the bread and the wine. Those two views make no sense to me. In general, I would say I take the memorial view. Now, why do you say in general? Uh, I was a Baptist for a lot of years, although for some way it didn't really fit who I was. I have this chronic problem with tucking my shirt in, and so and so it didn't really fit who who I was. Uh, I love my Baptist brethren. Please don't. I'm not making any. I'm not making any comments on any different view. I'm just trying to give some clarity to these things so you can think these things through. And and so um, and and I would say that most of my Calvary Chapel compadres are pure memorialists, that, that they would take that view, um, and, and I take the memorial view knowing that many times in the Lord's Supper, my affections have been drawn to Christ. Yet, I do long for the spiritual presence of Jesus in my life when I take the Lord's Supper. I do long for the spiritual presence of Jesus when we take the Lord's Supper. I long for the spiritual presence of Jesus in our church. That that we could actually say, Shh, he's walking among us. And so I do long for that spiritual presence. I, I long for the impartation or the giving of the grace of God. So now you say, well, there you sound like a, a reform view. Now you sound like the spiritual presence view. I, I often like to say I'm, I'm a memorialist with a touch of spiritual presence. You see, while I doubt the doctrine of real presence, not spiritual presence, real presence, I don't want to ever adopt a doctrine of real absence. I always want Christ, the spirit of Christ, to be among us. I believe, as we cited many examples last week, that Jesus is speaking figuratively, that the bread and the wine are not his literal body and blood. Yet, yet I also know, as my affections are drawn to Jesus, as I, and I sense his presence in a real and tangible way quite often during the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not about us. Please remember that, friends. It's about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as the Lamb died instead of the firstborn male at the Passover, Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. The Lord's Supper reminds us that all who have responded to Jesus with faith and trust have the forgiveness of sins and have eternal life because of the work of Of the cross of Christ. The Lord's Supper reminds us in Matthew 26 28 that Jesus died for many. And a true follower of Jesus, when they partake of the Lord's Supper rather than being so focused on themselves and for their own sin, should be so grateful that they are one of the many that Jesus Christ said that his blood was shed for. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is an invitation from Jesus to you for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and to become part of the family of God, to be adopted by God. Yes, my unbelieving friend, Jesus' sacrifice is offered to you. It is sufficient to get you to heaven. Jesus taught that he is the only way. Yet while it is sufficient, it is only efficient, it is only effective if you turn to God and put your trust in Jesus Christ If you, in the quietness of your seat, just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I haven't trusted in Jesus. And I want to turn from my sins, and I want to turn to you. And as I look up at the cross and I see Jesus dying for my sins, I'm drawn to him, and I'm going to trust in him. I'm not going to keep my trust in myself anymore and if that's happening to you, going on to you, that is, the, that is the spiritual presence of the Holy Spirit of God actually working in your heart. Finally, the Lord's Supper reminds us that, that Jesus is in this with us for the long haul. Matthew twenty six twenty nine. he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Notice the confidence of Jesus here. He knows he's going to die on the cross, and he knows he's going to rise from the dead. He knows that we will all be together again despite our failures. What is so interesting is while we'll still be, we're going to talk about what is actually going on during the Lord's Supper next week. But, but what is interesting in this passage is the next words that out of Jesus' mouth is how much they're all going to fail him. And Jesus does this meal with them, saying, I know you're going to fail me. I know it, man. But there's good news that I've died for your failures. Don't wallow in your guilt and your shame. Don't wallow in your failures. Rejoice. Rejoice. We're going to be in my Father's kingdom someday, and we will partake again. Then the confident Jesus and the soon to abandon Jesus Apostles We're told in verse 30, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now they had no idea really what was going on. We said before the city was hot. It was crowded. A couple million people there in for the Passover feast. Some people wanted Jesus to be the king. Some people wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus, he just wants to die on the cross and be raised from the dead for the sins of many. That's all he wants to really do. And now we know on the other side of it so much more than the apostles did. And yet they go out and they sing. How much more joy should we sing with since we now understand Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40. Words spoken in the midst of many, uh, many people rejecting Jesus while others decided To become part of the many. Jesus said this. Verse 37. All that the father gives me. Will come to me. And the one who comes to me. I will by no means cast out. Isn't that an incredible statement. That means if you really come to Jesus. You're like I'm coming to you man. I I, I want this. I want this for my life. I don't want to be the same anymore. I want to be different. I want to be new. I want to escape the guilt. I want to escape the shame. Jesus says, I will accept you, and it's guaranteed. You will in no way be cast out. Then he says, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he tells us what that will is. This is the will, verse 39, of the Father who sent me, that all, talking about followers of Jesus, he has given me, I should lose nothing. What does that mean? That means if you're like the apostles and you deny Jesus and you sin and you really belong to him, Jesus says, guess what? I'm not letting go. I'm not going to let go of you. Those guys were reunited with him. Why? Because Jesus did not let go. He said, I'm not going to lose you. I'm going to lose nothing, not one of you. You might say, oh, but, but me, you don't know what I've done. He says, nothing, none of you. I will not lose you. Jesus' grace is greater than your sin. So why do we take the Lord's Supper like it's the solemn funeral thing? Instead of being excited about what Christ has done. He says, I should, all that the Father has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone, that would be you, Christian, everyone who sees, that would be you, Christian, that would be you who wants to put your trust in Jesus Christ today for the first time. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him, everyone who imagines that cross and puts their trust in Jesus Christ instead of themselves, when people say to you, you, why are you going to heaven? You don't go, I'm a good person. You go, because I have trusted in the life of another, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus says, if you see me on that cross... And you put your trust in me. Everyone who sees the son and believes in him. May have everlasting life. When the Bible says that it's talking about heaven. And I will raise him up. At the last day. And the great promise. Of Matthew. 26 29 is. And all who have put their trust in Jesus. Will drink. The fruit of the vine with Jesus, one day in his Father's kingdom. I hope and I pray that just thinking about that, you will never, ever, ever partake in the Lord's Supper the same way again. As that's all about your sin and somebody dying, instead, realizing. It is about the forgiveness of sin. And we are shouting out to the unseen world, declaring his death until he comes again. Well, let's pray.